You may be seated. It is great to have the praise team back in action. It's been a while since they have led us, and I'm grateful for y'all for picking it up and wonderful, wonderful music this morning. We're beginning a new series this morning called Taking Jesus Literally, um, and that's meant to, to make you say, oh, uh, we're going to do that. Um, and so um, we're going to talk about that some this morning as we journey this summer through uh, the lectionary gospel text uh, and, and wrestle with the things that Jesus asks of his disciples and asks us to do. Matthew 9, uh, starting in verse 9, is where scripture comes from this morning. As Jesus continued on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. While Jesus was speaking to them, a ruler came and knelt in front of him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and place your hand on her and she'll live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. Then a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his clothes. She thought, if I only touch his robe, I'll be healed. When Jesus turned and saw her, he said, be encouraged, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that time on. When Jesus went into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the distressed crowd. He said, go away, because the little girl isn't dead, but is asleep. But they laughed at him. After he sent the crowd away, Jesus went in and touched her hand, and the little girl rose up. News about this spread throughout the whole region. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When Jesus says that thing, or when Jesus says X in scripture, does he really mean it? I mean, he said to cut out your eye if it's causing you to sin. And I think if that was true, not many of us would have eyes uh, in this service today. I know I would not have mine. So doesn't Jesus just use hyperbole? I mean, did Jesus really mean to sell everything we have and give it to the poor? Clearly, he would never ask us to do that. And when we ask these questions about what Jesus says to us, it is so easy for us to fall into self-justification. Of course, we shouldn't take Jesus literally. He was just trying to make a point, we say, and then we go back to our opulent houses and our one too many cars and our 401ks that we take security in. But if we decided to share more, to be more generous, to live less opulently, like how far is enough? 
how come Jesus didn't give us like a percentage guide to follow? You know, like if inflation is up 4% that year, then give this much and do this much away. Like why didn't Jesus just guide us in that way? And aren't we just going to drive ourselves crazy if we go ahead and try to take the words of Jesus literally? The purpose of this series is to take Jesus and his words seriously. In our lectionary gospel readings throughout these weeks, Jesus is going to say some very bold things. And I think it's best if we take him at his word first and then discern what that means for our lives. So today we're going to dig down into something Jesus says that isn't as controversial as cutting out your eyes or as other things that he said. But I believe it is something that challenges us to the core. So this passage, right, begins with the calling of Matthew, who becomes Jesus' disciple pretty much on the spot, right? And we are used to the phrase when we read scripture and when we look at the New Testament of tax collector. So we forget the significance of that term, of just how crazy it was that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, is calling a tax collector to follow after him. You might know this, but tax collectors were notorious cheats. So tax collectors, you know, it says Matthew was in his tax collecting kiosk, maybe some type of booth, but he had a responsibility to collect the taxes for everyone in the area. And when he had a responsibility to do that, the government, the Roman government would say, listen, Matthew, you've got to collect for us this number based on their census data and whatever else, right? You've got to collect that number, but we're not going to tell the people what that is, you go ahead and tell them what you want to collect, right? So Matthew could skim off the top whatever he wanted as long as he gave to the people above him what was owed. So tax collectors are cheats. Israel, we remember, is occupied at this time, okay? Think like what Russia would like to do to Ukraine, right? And, and, and for, for Ukrainians to have to live in a Russian-occupied state. This is what was happening to Israel during this time of Jesus, right? They are in a Roman state. So tax collectors then, who were Jews, were kind of like double agents. They were traitorous to their Jewish roots. They're Jews working on behalf of Rome. And then they also dealt with Gentiles all of the time. So a, a Jewish person was going to view them as unclean, working among these Gentiles all the time. And the money that they used even had images of idols on it, which the Jews didn't like either. So there was a lot working against a tax collector in this time. So what does Jesus do? He calls Matthew to follow after him. Immediately goes to a meal at his house and there around the table are a bunch of other tax collectors and sinners too. Sinners, it says, right? Those who are knowingly outside of the covenant community of Judaism. Those people who the Jews of Jesus' time would have considered unclean. And so the Pharisees, ever-abiding rule keepers, right, who we give a hard time, but really the Pharisees were just trying to be faithful to the covenant. They come to Jesus, and, and, and not to Jesus specifically, but to his disciples and say, why does he do all this stuff? Why, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he betraying our people? 
And Jesus, even though he's not part of the conversation, basically yells out to them, hey, it's not healthy people who need a doctor, it's the sick ones. All right, guys? So lay off. And for, for Jesus, sin is a disease that has to be cured. The Pharisees, he's not worried about them. They're already in God's covenant community. He would describe them, in this passage at least, as those who are well. But his job is to go to those who are sick with this disease of sin. So Jesus is going to push the line further. He is going to eat with the tax collectors and sinners. And eating with them in that culture is a massive deal. Eating showed that you were okay with those people, that you were safe around them, and in fact, that you were going to share together. And he's going to call all of these types these tax collectors and sinners, to be his disciples. He is going to expand the welcome at God's table when the Pharisees are trying to contract who's at God's table. And then the text moves on, right, to these literal healings, these acts that really show Jesus' abundant compassion. These healings that are a display of just how open God's table is. The woman with the issue of bleeding and the leader's Daughter. Now, there's not as much in Matthew as there might be in Mark and Luke about these people. We get way more description in those Gospels. But a Jew was unclean in the presence of blood. And we know that this woman from other texts was bleeding with, for 12 years, had some type of hemorrhaging issue, right? So she was basically untouchable in that society. Jews also couldn't be around dead corpses. That made them unclean. So we have two things working against these people in this story today. And Jesus breaks both of those rules too. The woman, right, with the issue of bleeding comes up to Jesus. She just wants to stretch out in the crowd and reach, it says, the, the hem of his robe. Or maybe the fringes of a prayer shawl that Jesus is wearing and she thinks that, like in a magical, superstitious way, that if she touches that robe, that somehow that will be the thing that heals her. And what Jesus wants her to know is that, no, it's belief in the power of the healer that actually heals you. And she is healed. And then the story goes back to this leader who has asked for Jesus to come to his house. And what does Jesus do? It says there's flute players there and people essentially performing the morning rites over this dead girl. And Jesus says, get out of here. She's not dead. She's asleep. And he raises her up from the dead right there in that space. Jesus makes it clear here who he is in ministry with. The sick, the people who are traditionally despised in their culture, the people who are on the margins. And then in the midst of that description to the Pharisees, he says, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says this, Learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I want mercy and not sacrifice. And this puts Jesus right in line with the prophetic tradition. First of all, he's directly quoting Hosea 6, 6. When God says, I desire faithful love, or mercy as it's translated here, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God instead of entirely burned offerings. What Jesus is doing here is saying, the sacrificial system that all Jews knew and loved, the important thing isn't the actual physical element that is happening, but rather what it's doing inside of you. 
That tradition continued on in Isaiah, in Isaiah 58. Listen to Isaiah here. He says, why do we fast and you don't see, the people are saying. Why afflict ourselves and you don't notice, they say to God. Then God responds, yet on your day you do whatever you want and oppress all your workers. You quarrel and brawl and then you fast. You hit each other violently with your fists. You shouldn't fast as you are doing today if you want to make your voice heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I choose? A day of self-affliction, of bending one's head like a reed and of lying down in mourning clothes and ashes. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast I choose, God asks. Releasing wicked restraints, untying the ropes of a yoke, setting free the mistreated and breaking every yoke. Isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry? And bringing the homeless poor into your house, covering the naked when you see them and not hiding from your own family. Then your light will break out like the dawn and you will be healed quickly. Your own righteousness will walk before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and God will say, I'm here. The point of fasting for Isaiah here is not self-deprivation. It's not how we often think about Lent, which is quasi-making ourselves miserable for 40 days. No, the point of the fast is setting other people free. I want mercy and not sacrifice, God says. In Psalm 51, that text we often read on Ash Wednesday, David says this, You don't want sacrifices. If I gave an entirely burned offering, you wouldn't be pleased, he says to God. A broken spirit is my sacrifice, God. You won't despise a heart, God, that is broken and crushed. In other words, it's not about the outward practices of religion, the sacrifice. It's about the heart with which they are done. And this is always the focus of Jesus when we think about the Sermon on the Mount and when Jesus says things like, you have heard it said... But I say to you, he falls in line with this prophetic tradition. It's about the condition of your heart. It's about what is going on inside, not about how you dress it up on the outside. So friends, here is how I am challenged by these words of Jesus. I want mercy and not sacrifice today. As I get older, more set in my ways as a follower of Jesus, and even more religious... I mean, look at me. I have a stole on. I'm official. I am getting good at sacrifices. And Jesus looks me in the eye and he says, I want mercy and not sacrifice. How do we not become Pharisees as we become used to and habituated in following God? In other words, how do we all not become spiritual grumpy old men. I get more judgmental the older I get. I get hardened and think that my way of thinking must be the right way. So I genuinely want to explore this. How do I keep my heart soft even as I grow more rooted in God? How do I keep my heart soft even as I grow more rooted in God? But well, one way is I think we do it by being close to places where we show mercy. 
We keep our hearts soft by caring for people who are on the margins, by keeping the company that Jesus would keep. And then we can reflect to ourselves, genuinely, am I behaving mercifully? Jesus says in Matthew 25, right, when you have done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So Jesus here desires mercy. Not how good we are at Bible knowledge. Not how many committees we serve on. Not even our church attendance or our giving. And here's what's hard. You and I have a scorecard by which we judge and keep score. I am doing good as a pastor when you are more involved, when you attend more, and you give more, because those are the marks that I can keep track of, and my district superintendent likes it too, then I am righteous. But what I've gotten you to do is be good at the sacrificial system. Your heart is not necessarily changed in any of that towards mercy. And then you keep score of one another in that system. Well, they're not as involved as they could be, I haven't seen such and such in a long time. You see, our Pharisee scorecards are very good. And we can improve in those areas on our Pharisee scorecards without ever showing a lick of mercy. When we began the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Study around 2021 in the midst of COVID, and I was talking with church leaders about the importance of this, Pete Scazzaro shared an example, the author of that study. He shares an example in the first chapter of that book, basically talking about a guy who had attended his church for 20 some odd years, who was faithfully there every week, who tithed, who came to the midweek Bible study prayer meeting, and he was still a wretched person to be around. How can this happen? How could someone who's part of all of these spiritual disciplines and spiritual things and things that the pastor told them to come to and encourage them to and had them sign on the dotted line to make sure that they would do it. How? Well, it's because they're on the Pharisee scorecard. But their emotional and mental wellness has not been touched in the midst of it. They learned how to sacrifice, but not necessarily how to behave mercifully. I invite you into a posture that allows Jesus to speak literally to you. Before you get defensive about what he says or start right away by justifying away what it is to make it easier for you to, and more palatable, I invite you to self-reflection and openness to the Holy Spirit where you say, how can my heart remain soft toward God and towards others, a heart of mercy, instead of hardening into a heart of stone. Have mercy on me, Lord. Amen.